Thank you. You may be seated and let me add my welcome to all of you here this morning. Wonderful to see you in this beautiful, beautiful Lord's Day. And welcome those who are in our service over in the hub and also those that are uh, joining us online. We're grateful that in the Lord Jesus Christ we're brought into his presence in a moment of worship, right? And we thank God for that wonderful privilege. It's glad to see you. We pray for people that are traveling. We know this is spring break and <clears throat> many people are, are traveling this weekend. You're traveling back so we keep them in our, in our prayers. But also as we've already heard in prayer and I'm thankful, I know that you've been praying, uh, the folks of the Ukraine, the surrounding countries there constantly on our minds, and it's a privilege for us to enter in in prayer for God's people to be His voice, His hands and feet in this terrible hour, over three million refugees now that have flooded into those surrounding countries, Romania, Moldova, Slovakia, I think two million just into Poland, and as We've shared with you, sent out to the church this week also. You may have seen the video I made. Uh, we feel like God wants us to have a part in praying, yes, but also sending resources to those who are ministering to those refugees. It is uh, the Ukrainian Refugee Fund. And uh, that offering is already open. And if you would like to even use the envelope today as you leave, you can go by to the offering boxes in the welcome areas and drop that in. You can go online as well and give your contribution, send it into the church. Also, next week we'll be continuing to receive this offering. And I hope, folks, that we will be generous uh, so that those who are loving folks in Christ's name can uh, have the resources to do that. We're grateful that we have a number of our partners who are missionary partners around that area. And we have means to be able to get those resources to where they're most needed. Also want to remind you that next Sunday evening, 5 o'clock, we do have the Ukraine share and prayer time here at the church. It'll be over in the Hub Student Center. We're grateful for one of our partners, uh, Missio Link International, MLI, which is holding a community time of sharing information and praying, praying for those in uh, this dire situation. And we're grateful to be partnered with MLI. And so next Sunday, 5 o'clock, I hope that you'll mark your calendar, plan to be a part of that time of sharing. You'll learn much that I can assure you, you're not, you're not hearing in the news. And you will learn much on how to pray specifically, and you'll also be able to rejoice in great things that God's doing. And what we're going to focus on this morning in our Word reminds us in the, in the worst of evil, God brings praise to His Son. God is able to bring the beauty of the Lord out of ashes. And what we cannot see and understand, God is doing even now in the midst of this terrible crisis. 
we want to be partakers in that by prayer, laboring together in prayer, and then also being generous in our giving. And I know the kind of congregation you are and that you'll respond as you always have with great uh, Holy Spirit-directed generosity. Now this morning, let's look at the passage that's been read, Luke chapter 22. But I'd also encourage you, if you have your Bibles or have the Bible on your device, to also be ready to turn here, first of all, to a psalm, Psalm 88, Psalm 88. But we'll be focusing on the passage that's been read, Luke 22. Last week, as we had our time in the Word, I shared with you one of the most meaningful moments uh, that I've ever experienced. Blessed to experience it also with my wife when we were able with a group of people to go into, yes, the Garden of Gethsemane, have time to walk among those 2,000-year-old olive trees that were there the night Jesus cried out to the Father. We were able to have time of prayer meditation underneath those olive trees. I will never forget that. What a gift. So amazing. But this week as we're preparing for this time in God's Word, there's another amazing moment. Truly amazing as you will hear as I share it with you. Because it was not just personal in my own heart, but other people entered into it as well. This experience also took place in Jerusalem. We were there with a group and for the very first time we were able to enter into some recently discovered, uncovered ruins in the hillside above Jerusalem. And there was a palace that was discovered, the ruins of a palace, and it was determined that this was the palace of the high priest Caiaphas. But what was surprising and what they were not expecting was that beneath this palace of Caiaphas was a huge system of cisterns, huge water containers that would contain millions of gallons. And there were steps that led down into these various cisterns. Well, on further observation by the archaeologists, they were able to determine that one of these huge cisterns had actually been used as a dungeon beneath the palace of Caiaphas. And there, people who were arrested and who were about to be tried by the Sanhedrin, would be kept there. Very likely, very likely, that our Lord Jesus Christ spent part of that final awful night down in the depths of that cistern. Maybe standing in water, chained to a wall, as a group, we were able to go down into that now dry, dusty, 2,000-year-old cistern. 
And there in that dim light, we were able to have a time of prayer and scripture reading. I asked a member of our group to pray and to read scripture for us. And the passage that he chose was a few verses from Psalm 88. And I'll never, never will forget how huddled in that darkness with just a little bit of light, our dear brother Don, Don Unruh, with trembling voice, read from this psalm. Psalm 88. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol, the grave. I am accounted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead. Like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit. In the regions dark and deep. We don't know what Jesus prayed from that dungeon, perhaps a psalm like that. But when Don finished that prayer and that scripture reading, this is what happened. A few of us standing there just felt led collectively to begin singing. And we began singing the old hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, That Saved a Wretch Like Me. And the others of our group joined the song. And I wish you could have heard the voices echoing up and up and up from that deep dungeon of the cistern. But something amazing happened. As we sang, we began to hear other voices. People who were waiting to come and also enter into that place. People on the steps above us who started to join in singing, but they are from different countries and they're singing in different languages, but they know the same song. And so as we're climbing up out of that pit, we're passing people singing in their languages, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And when we reached the top, there was a group Singing in Chinese. Amazing grace. Wow. Double wow. That was a moment. And I thought, isn't it amazing? The message of that song written by a man so wicked and ungodly, a captain of a slave ship, kidnapper of souls out of Africa, 
abuser, blasphemer, vile man was gripped by the grace of God, forgiven, became a pastor of a little Baptist church in England, wrote some songs for his congregation to sing on Sundays, and one of them was his testimony. Amazing grace. And now, 250 years later, here are people all over the world knew the song, singing testimony of salvation to the Lord. My friend, I want to tell you, in the deepest, darkest moments, in the depths of human history, God's there. And He is at work. And as great as sin may be, God's grace is greater. The power of the Lamb of God. This week and the next few weeks as we head toward Easter, we're following the suffering and the triumph of the King of the Jews, the Lamb of God, and He is both. To begin this last section of Luke, I want us to come to this passage now. Turn, if you would, now to Luke 22. And I want us to look at this passage, and I want us to note two court scenes. There are two court scenes here that I want to call to your attention. There is the courtyard scene, and there's the courtroom scene. And they are very, very different. But they are both scenes of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. He has kissed him to identify him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ has been arrested. He has rebuked his disciples who have tried to intervene with the sword. He's told them... Stop this. My kingdom will not be built this way. You will not intervene in the plan of the Father. They scatter. Jesus is bound. He's led from the garden down the slopes of the Mount of Olives, across that dark Kidron Valley. He's pushed and shoved up the slopes leading to the eastern wall of the temple. Then around the corner where the pinnacle of the temple rises and rises above. And then up, up, up a long stairway that leads to the palace of Caiaphas the high priest. And following along in the distance. Slinking from shadow to shadow is the boldest and most confident of Jesus' disciples, Simon Peter. Jesus is taken to the palace of Caiaphas. It's a cold night. And the soldiers who've just arrested him kindle a fire. 
And we're told in verse 55, And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Now here we have the courtyard. It's one of the two court scenes that I want you to focus with me upon this morning. What is this court scene? This is what I would call the courtyard of denial. The courtyard of denial. We know what's about to happen. Here is the leader of Jesus' disciples seated with the ones who've just arrested his master, warming himself at their fire. How in the world did this happen? How did this big fisherman, bold and confessor of Christ, how did he end up here? What's, What's happened? Well, Peter did not arrive at this place and he did not experience what is about to happen that night in a vacuum. There were things in his life that were causing Peter, the rock, to crumble. And when the pressure was on, he wasn't a rock at all. Now I want you, if we would, just note the progression. You can't understand what's about to happen unless you note the progression in Peter's life. What has led to this? Let me share these three road signs on the journey to this moment. First of all, there is pridefulness. Pridefulness. Pride always precedes what? A fall. Pride always precedes a fall, and Simon Peter is a proud man. And his pride was on full display that night. How was his pride displayed? Well, it was displayed, first of all, in a self-focus. A self-focus. And where do we see that self-focus? Where he's so concerned about himself above all things. Where do we see that? I'll tell you where we see it is when Jesus stood up and wrapped a towel around his waist and went and poured water in a basin to do what? To wash the disciples' feet. Why did Jesus do that? That was to happen before the meal. He did it because no one else was willing to do it. They were already talking about who was going to be greatest. Not one of them was willing to take the position of a servant. So Jesus did. And when Jesus gets to Peter, you remember what Peter said, and it's, it's found in John 13, John's Gospel, verses 5 and 6. Now, let me paraphrase it for you. It, Peter said this, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet, are you? And, and the idea in what he says there is literally, Lord, you don't think for a moment you're going to wash my feet. 
Why is Peter so concerned about Jesus? No, he's so focused on himself. This will make me feel weird. You're not going to wash my feet. Well, praise God, Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. Thank God for Peter. He had a big mouth and a big heart. He said, oh Lord, then, if that's the case, don't just stop at my feet, do my head, give me a whole bath. <laughs> and the Lord said, no. If I've made you clean, you just need to have your feet washed. Now and then. Peter relented. But his first response, what was his first response? Humility? No, self-focus. And then what else do we see in Peter that night? His pridefulness. Not just his, his self-focus, but his self-confidence. Oh, he's so confident in what he will never do. You remember this? Look at chapter 22, verses 33 to 34. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Another gospel says, he added to this, though all else, everyone else forsakes you, not me. I will never, and the idea here literally is, I will never, never, never do that. He was so full of self-confidence. But listen, church, listen. And we need to hear it. Whatever is referred to in our world as a virtue that has to do with self-confidence and self-focus is rooted in pride and it will bring you down. We need to stop listening to the commercials. We need to stop giving in to the bombardment constantly that it's all about us because it's not. Self-confidence is going to bring us down. It's not self-confidence we should be seeking. It's Savior confidence. Jesus said, without me, you can do what? Nothing. What's nothing? Nothing is a zero with a line marked out. Nothing's less than zero. Now there's another insight into Peter's journey that night. Pridefulness. And his pridefulness led to what? Pridefulness will lead to something. 
It, you know, this is what pridefulness leads to. It doesn't first lead to you walk around with your nose up in the air. No, what happens, you live your life not with your nose up in the air. You live your life with your knees unbent. It leads to prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. There was never a night when Peter needed to pray more than this night, yet he was prayerless. In spite of the Lord's prediction, what did the Lord told him? Peter, you're going to deny me three times. In spite of the warning, he didn't pray. In spite of the Lord's persistence in pleading with him to pray, we, we read last week that Jesus came back and said to the disciples, pray that you don't enter into temptation. Pray that you don't enter into temptation. And we're told actually in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus came personally to Peter and said, Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? Could you not watch and pray with me for one hour? Peter, don't you know the Spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. The Lord had actually personally gone to Peter, warned him about what was going to happen, pled with him to pray, and personally did so again. But he was prayerless that night. Pridefulness led to prayerlessness. And what did that lead to? Powerlessness. Powerlessness. He comes to the tragic courtyard scene. He's not ready. He's not ready. Here he is. The strongest, weakest disciple you can imagine. Let's read about it. Verse 54, they seized Jesus, they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. Peter was following at a distance. Note that. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them, following the Lord at a distance, sitting down, buddy-buddy, with the enemies of the Lord. What a big, strong disciple, a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him said, this man also was with him. And he denied it, saying, woman, I don't know him. I don't know this man. Peter came to that courtyard unprepared. Listen carefully. Peter had not knelt in private, so he was not ready to stand in public. And neither are we. If we will not kneel in private before the Lord, 
we will not have the strength to stand in this evil day and having done all to stand. The big fisherman could not even stand up to the accusation of a young girl who probably got up to milk the cows. Then there's another challenge. Verse 58, it just continues. And a little while later, someone else said to him, You are also one of them. And Peter said, Man, I'm not. Stronger. I'm not. And finally, a challenge that specifically identified him with Jesus. Notice verse 59. And after an interval of about an hour. This is not just a moment's weakness. Another insisted. That means he's loudly saying this. Certainly this man was also with him for he too is a Galilean. Could tell by his accent. He's a Galilean. And just if any of you are interested, Galilee is a northern accent in Israel. Okay. <laughs> I don't mean anything by that. I'm just noting it. They could tell by his accent. He's not from around these parts away. He sounds just like Jesus. He even speaks like him. He is one of them. What was Peter's response? Verse 60, man, I do not know what you are talking about, is the idea. And the other gospel says that he cursed and took an oath that he did not know Jesus. He cursed and took an oath that he did not know Jesus. And that's when the moment came. The crowing of the rooster, right? He's in the courtyard, but the rooster is the prosecutor in the court. He crows. Never had a sound so pierced a man's heart than that sound. And I can imagine that never another day would dawn and Peter would hear the crowing of a rooster that he had ever forget this. Do you think? Never. But far more devastating, and it's Luke, the great, great storyteller of details. Far more devastating to Peter than the crowing of that rooster was this. Notice verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. 
Can you imagine? The rooster crowed. You've just cursed and sworn an oath that you do not know Jesus. And in the torchlight, you look and see the one you've just denied gazing at you. We can't imagine. It was not a gaze of anger. It was not a gaze of retribution. It, it was a gaze of sadness mingled with love. And Peter couldn't handle it. He was just devastated. When he saw the look on his master's face, he remembered what the Lord had said. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And that term for wept there is a very interesting word. It's a word usually associated with the weeping at a funeral or the death of a loved one. He's sobbing his heart out all through that night of what he has done in denying his Lord. Friends, we can't be too harsh on Peter, can we? I think we'd have to agree what a great preacher from 150 years ago, J.C. Ryle, said this. The best and the highest saint is a poor, weak creature, even at best times. Whether he knows it or not, he carries within him an almost boundless capacity of wickedness. However fair and decent his outward conduct may seem, there is no enormity of sin into which he may not run if he does not watch and pray. And if the grace of God does not hold him up. When we read the fall of Peter, we only read what might possibly befall any of ourselves. Let us never presume. Let us never indulge in high thoughts about our own strength. Well, quickly, we turn from this court, the courtyard of the denial, and I want us to turn just for a moment to the other court. I call this courtroom the courtroom of confession because just as terrible, terrible is the Denial of Peter is wonderful, wonderful. The confession of Jesus standing in the Supreme Court of the land. Jesus is arrested. He's taken to the palace of the high priest Caiaphas. If you take all the gospel accounts, he's taken from several interviews that night. Caiaphas to Caiaphas' father-in-law, Annas, who is the real power, back to Caiaphas, then to 
Herod. Back to Pilate then. Jesus is led back and back, back and back, all over that wealthy, wealthy section of Jerusalem. And while he's being led, he's being constantly abused and tortured. Verse 63, imagine this. Those who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him. They were beating him. They blindfolded him and kept asking, prophesy, prophesy, who is the one that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. This whole thing is illegal. From start to finish, this is all illegal. Arrest in the middle of the night. Trial in the middle of the night. Finally, to give everything a little veneer of legality, Caiaphas calls the Sanhedrin together at daylight because technically only at daylight or during the day could the Sanhedrin, the court, meet. Sanhedrin is, means 70. 70 leaders who were the supreme court of the people of Israel. High priests led this court as the chief justice. Doesn't that word stick in your throat? A mock trial. Witnesses couldn't even agree. They couldn't get anybody to agree. There, there was no testimony that could condemn Jesus. And so finally, in their frustration, what did they do? They just directly asked Jesus. They, they can't get these crooked, wicked witnesses to give a clear testimony. So we'll just ask the prisoner. And so they did. Here's what happened. Verse 66. When the day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together. Both priests and scribes. They led him away to their council. That's the Sanhedrin. And they said... If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask, you will not answer. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is really saying, it's not me that's on trial, really. You're on trial. I've not been hidden. Who's on trial here is not me. It's you. But, Jesus goes on to say, since you want, the idea is, since you want a clear statement, if I am the Messiah, the Christ, he says, I'll make it pretty clear for you. Verse 69, but from now on. The Son of Man, that's his favorite title for himself. The Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Boom. Yeah, wow. Every Jewish leader in that court 
They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He was going back to the prophet Daniel. And here is the passage he's referencing when he sees this. Says this, Daniel saw this in a prophecy of a coming kingdom. And what did Daniel see and prophesy over 500 years earlier? This, Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Behold, he came to the ancient of days, that is God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. That's what Jesus answered. That's who I am. So enraged, these Sanhedrin, these leaders, that they just bluntly put out, are you saying then, are you saying that you are the Son of God? And his answer was, you have said so. What does that mean? Oh, that's what you think? No, that's not what it means. What you have just said is true. That's who I am. How do we know that's what he meant? Because of the reaction of the jury. Verse 71, they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it from His own lips. We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. He says he is equal to God. And the high priest grabs his garment, rips it in a sign of national grief at this blasphemy. Well, friend, it's blasphemy Unless it's true. And if it's true, it's not blasphemy. Jesus was not nailed to that cross because he was a moral teacher. He was not nailed to that cross because he was trying to change society. He was not nailed to that cross as a victim of capitalism gone crazy. He was nailed to that cross because he declared in court that he is the king of the Jews, the son of the living God. And they made their decision what to do with the king, the son of God. Crucified. Do not let this world reinvent Jesus for you. Jesus is who he says he is. And do not let media, do not let political parties, 
Do not let churches that have no love for God redefine for you who Jesus is. He is the King, the Son of the living God. And if He's not, what are we doing here? We are of all men most to be pitied if we gather here and worship someone who lied under oath. But he didn't lie. They put him to death. They put him in the grave. But he didn't stay dead. <laughs> because he's the prince of life. I'm jumping ahead to Easter. <laughs> hey, but for us, it's Easter every day, right? Now, we got to come back to Peter for a moment. None of this took Jesus by surprise. Do you remember what he told Peter? You've got to remember, even as he warned Peter and told him how weak he was, even as he knew what Peter was going to do, Jesus has already taken care of it. And he's going to completely take care of it. Luke 22, verse 31. Just look up and we close here. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Satan has longed to get his hands on you. What hope is there for someone who Satan wraps his hands around him? What hope? This hope. But I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you, Peter. And that your faith will not fail. And when you've been turned around, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Something stronger than the plotting and the attacks of Satan. Something stronger than our failures, brothers and sisters. Something more glorious than our awful weakness. It's the prayers of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. He said, I've prayed for you, Peter. You know what today? Some of us here, we've really messed up really have but Jesus has prayed for us and he says I'm going to turn you around you may deny me you may curse and swear that you don't know me but I know you you may fail but I'll succeed you may deny but I will confess
You may be unfaithful, but I'll be faithful all the way to the cross. And I will turn you around. And when I turn you around, you're going to have a mission. Go strengthen your brothers and let them know it's not over. It's not too late. And there is hope. C.S. Lewis was right when he said, quote, Though our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. Is not wearied, his love is not wearied by our sins or our indifference. And therefore, it is quite relentless in its demonstration that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us and whatever cost to him. Peter repented. He repented. He wept bitterly. Listen, why did Peter weep bitterly? Because Jesus had prayed for him. What does repentance do? Repentance runs to God. Because God is turning the person to himself because of Jesus. Remorse doesn't do that. Remorse runs from God. That's what Judas did. Judas did not repent of his sin and run to Christ. He was remorseful for what he did. But he ran from God into darkness and despair where there was no hope. And with the lies of the enemy that was in him, he took his own life. Remorse is not that you're sorry. It's beyond remorse. It's repentance that the Lord calls us to to turn and run to God. Why? Because God is like Jesus. Because Jesus is God. And he has prayed for you. He has died for this. Whatever you've done, Jesus died for that on the cross. And the question is not whether you can be forgiven. The question is if you will run to Christ and be forgiven. The question is not whether you can have a new beginning. The question is whether you will turn and run to Christ and experience a new beginning. The question is not whether you can get out of the dark. The question is, will you run to the light? My friend, listen to the Lord. Even though you may feel far away, He's prayed for you. He will restore you, and he'll give you a new mission. Let's bow our heads. Dear friend, right now as our heads are bowed, let's quiet ourselves. Will you run to the Father? Will you, will you not just be in remorse? Will you run to the Father in repentance? Dear friend, you cannot begin to understand the love of Christ. He loves you. 
And if you've never given your life to Christ, please hear this. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He bore your sin. Paid in full your debt. And God has raised him from the dead. And all who come to him, none are turned away. I beg you, come to Jesus. I'm not asking you to come to church. I'm not asking you to join the church. I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm asking you and begging you in Jesus' name, run to him and you'll find his arms are open wide. And dear Christian friend, you feel like Peter. You hear the rooster crowing. You're sitting with the enemy. You're out in the dark. You've been proud and self-focused and self-reliant. You've been prayerless. You don't deserve to even call yourself a Christian. But friend, Jesus is looking at you. Do you see him? He's looking at you right now. What is he saying in his gaze? I've prayed for you. That your faith might not fail. Come. Turn around. I'll use you again to strengthen others. Lord, I pray and ask now that your voice will be heard above all the lies of the enemy, the doubts of our fleshly mind, the truth of Christ, his pleading and his love. May it be heard. And Lord, may freedom come now. To many, I pray. And Lord, our only hope is amazing grace. Thank you for amazing grace. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. And I began by telling you about the joy of singing that song (laughs) down in the depths of that cistern with a few brothers and sisters and hearing it sung by people of every imaginable language. But I think we're going to be singing it for a long, long time, don't you? I think we'll be singing it in heaven. And so let's just sing that to the Lord. Let's just imagine ourselves there with Jesus and singing over him and singing to him in testimony of what he's doing for us. Let's sing.